today on Ag News Daily. Our milk is being processed for, for cheese mainly. So there's cows living here longer than I am on the farm. And I moved to the farm, like I said, 12 years ago, yes. Listeners, Wednesday, June 14th. Tanner and Delaney here hanging out with you on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. We hope to bring you a little bit of value this morning, Delaney, but got some news. Most of our meteorologists and climatologist friends are now saying that the Pacific Ocean near the equator has warmed sufficiently to reach the El Nino status. This is now something that will hopefully help us here in Iowa because nearly 43% of the state is in a drought condition. Dry conditions have now expanded to cover almost half of the state as well as other ports of the Corn Belt. But when you look at Iowa here, Delaney, it's been drier over the last four months than typical for the year. But we now have climatologists stating that this could mean we would have uh, little slightly warmer temperatures and above average rainfall. So possibly we could see some good accurate weather coming through our area, hopefully nothing too severe to help make and boost what's left of the crop potential here in the central United States. We still have thunderstorm warnings for our friends down there in Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas area. Still some air quality uh, issues here in the north and northeast, but ultimately looking like it's going to be a pretty good day for our listeners today. Yeah, and we are officially in an El Nino weather pattern, according to meteorologists, Tanner. So that typically tends to be cooler, wetter temperatures. So we're really hoping for some rain for those of our listeners that are in extreme drought areas. But another area we haven't really talked about a whole lot that is in major drought is Alberta, Canada. As you look at drought conditions as of May 31st, much of the region is in abnormally dry areas for even Alberta, Canada with quite a few areas in abnormally dry or D0 areas, but a good bit in D1 drought areas and all the way up through D3, which is extreme drought categories. But of course that area there in Alberta, which is Calgary, for those of you that need a little reference point on the map, uh, Calgary and north slash west of there. This is a very big area for A lot of different crops, Tanner, including canola, barley, and other uh, grain crops there, but they've definitely seen some really dry weather patterns. So we're hoping we can send some rains to our Canadian friends as well. Yeah, if we had control over the weather, I think we'd make a lot of people happy. The USDA this year is uh, accepting more than a million acres for their CRP program. The more than a million acres was offered to entry for the Conservation Reserve Program. During the recent signup that ended at the end of April, Tom Vilsack was reporting, stating that contracts expire on 2 million acres of land and the reserve this fall will have nearly 23 million acres enrolled. However, this is still well below the 27 million acre tap or cap. Landowners offered 1.2 million acres at the end of the general signup. 891,000 of those were in an expiring contract. So this issue states that there's very little new CRP signup. Of course, Delaney, we typically see that when 
crop prices and revenue from row crop acres are higher. And that's the environment that we're currently in. There's other ways for our listeners to put land into the reserve, even after the deadline. The high priority ground, such as buffer strips, windbreaks, small acreage practices, uh, are still able to sign up in the continuous enrollment. Of the 23 million acres that are now in CRP, 8.4 million acres are large tracks, 8.2 acres entered through the continuous enrollment program, and 6.4 million acres were under the grassland option. So not a surprise that we didn't see a huge jump in CRP acres this year, but we're certainly well below the 27 million acre cap. Well, Tanner, we got a fresh round of shots fired here between Russia and Ukraine as on Tuesday, President Putin said that Russia was considering withdrawing from the Black Sea grain deal. This has been the first time he specifically, I think, has said this, Tanner, as we've seen lots of other officials hinting at this and saying that this might be the case. But President Putin has now said this, stating that the reason they were going to likely pull out of the deal was because of the West's cheating, is what he called it. He said that the West had cheated Moscow by implementing none of the promises to get Russian agricultural goods onto the world market, and that the deal allows Ukraine to resume seaborne grain exports and has quite a bit of help for them, but no help for Moscow and Russia. And so to convince Moscow to approve an extension of the pact, they're actually trying to initiate the UN officials are trying to initiate a three-year accord, which is seems highly unlikely, Tanner, that that would be possible. But apparently UN officials have also agreed to help Russia with their own food and exports, fertilizer exports specifically. But Putin said that the commitment hasn't been honored. And in response to that, that's why they have started to slow shipments coming in and out of the Black Sea area. Well, maybe we got a little clarity if uh, there is truth to that. Got a couple of Inflation Reduction Act headlines. This has been the most significant climate legislation, even though it is not considered that in its titling. The $770 billion package included $19 billion in support to the USDA for its conservation programs. $8.5 billion was for the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP. $4.95 billion for regional conservation partnership programs, $3.25 for CSP, $1.4 billion for the agricultural conservation easement program, and another billion for technical assistance program. This provides our listeners with the best opportunity that they've ever had if they want to transition to climate smart agriculture, but the money won't last forever. Bill Sack and his crew are continuing to work to disperse these funds. And one way that they're dispersing it is through the Rural Broadband Project. The Rural Broadband Project is getting $714 million in USDA grants and loans. They announced that 19 states from South Carolina to California will get this money. And the new round of funding will put $2.45 billion into rural broadband as part of its reconnect program. The all Americans deserve to have internet, and it is an essential tool for access to health, education, care, and jobs. The White House Infrastructure Advisor is stating that rural America's high-speed internet can connect people and opportunities 
that we don't already have access to. So we're looking at 142 different projects that will get high-speed services that will reach nearly 315,000 individuals. Some 65 billion was allotted in 2021 for the infrastructure law, but this is an added boost to continue to take out and carry that program. Secretary Tom Vilsack said ReConnect provided important benefits so far, so they are looking at continuing to boost that example, or boost that. And for example, California, Doris, California, was granted nearly $25 million to deploy their fiber to premises network that will take care of those in lightly populated Northern California. So kind of nice to see continued investment and utilizing some of the government funding to help our listeners in rural areas. Alexander, as we continue to watch headlines coming out of the beef industry, we've got two big headlines, a couple actually big headlines I wanted to touch on here related to the protein markets. As we continue to watch how the floods impacted much of Texas, final numbers have been released for the number of cattle killed in the severe flooding that took place around the area of Hereford, Texas, specifically during the recent Memorial Day holiday weekend. Early on, Tanner, apparently some news outlets were sharing that losses were around 10,000 or more head, but now with floodwaters receded and cleanup mostly complete, the Texas Cattle Feeders Association has confirmed losses of about 4,000 head, which is still a lot, don't get me wrong, but definitely not quite as inflated as the original 10,000 number that was getting toted around. So while that is going on, we also saw Tyson Foods lay off 228 employees near Chicago who declined to move to Arkansas. It was announced last year in October that their offices were moving to Arkansas and that it that location employed about 500 employees overall. Well, Tyson said it was going to eliminate some positions, but others had to move to the company's headquarters in Arkansas, and about 228 folks were not willing to do so. So they had a big round of layoffs there. And lastly, Walmart revealed on Tuesday that it is planning to open a $257 million beef processing and packaging facility in Olathe, Kansas, this plant is designed to package and distribute products from the new Sustainable Beef LLC plant that is under construction in North Platte, Nebraska. This partnership here is really focused on raising beef and processing beef sustainably, and Walmart also announced that they will be taking a minority stake in the Sustainable Beef, which is a rancher-owned startup and is expected to be operational late next year, but they're expecting to process about 1,500 head per day or about 100,000 head per year annually when fully operational. Yeah, I had seen that headline as well. We had reported on those locations getting packing plants, but interesting to see Walmart as the power behind it. Egg prices saw their largest drop in price in nearly 72 years, but we're still not back to pre-COVID levels. Egg prices sent shoppers on a roller coaster last year. The May CPI, which is what the Federal Reserve will be taking into account today during their meeting, saw inflation drop. However, we're seeing groceries, used vehicles, and housing prices still holding that level higher than they would like to see it. The most sizable drop for groceries came in eggs. Eggs are now below $2.66 a dozen. 
that's 13.8% lower month over month. That represents the largest monthly decline since January of 1951. However, year over year, prices are only down four tenths of a percent. So before you get too excited and run out and buy a whole bunch of eggs, a decade ago, egg prices were $1.91 a dozen. Even in 2020, egg prices were $1.51 a dozen. So nearly a dollar lower than what you were paying at the grocery store today. But the last thing I've got is just some headlines to add to your Russian conversation. Russia launched deadly attacks on civilians in Odessa and Donetsk on Wednesday. 11 people had died due to that Russian, Russian missile strike. Uh, Ukrainian officials have claimed success on advances in their southern regions. They have seen certain gains, in quotes. Kiev continues to gain underscore, uh, underscored needs from Western assistance. They're saying they have a stronger hand now than they ever had. And of course, UN officials are continuing to inspect the dam collapse as it'll have a huge impact to our food system. So that's what I've got for news today, Delaney. Well, Tanner, I think aside from chatting markets, I am out of headlines here as well. So as we take a look here, overnights have not yet settled as we are recording this earlier than usual, but weakness is leading the charge in the overnights nonetheless. July corn is about 10 cents lower here before the final closing of the overnight at 602 and a quarter. Dece new crop corn down seven cents at 544 and a quarter. July soybeans down eight and a half cents here in the overnight at 1390. November new crop beans down seven and a half cents at 1232. In the wheat pits, the July contract is shedding eight. 11 and a half cents right now at 780 and a quarter. And Tanner, it's likely that those markets will open weaker and likely not going to see any sort of a short term rally here within the next 45 minutes. But in the cattle complex, of course, yesterday we saw some strength on the board as the log August live cattle contract added 72 and a half cents at a buck 73.92. August feeder cattle added a dollar 40 at 240.45. And July lean hogs shed a dollar yesterday at $90.60. Tanner, we are chatting today with the Dutch farmer that I visited last week. Well, as I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, I am in the Netherlands this week with a very special friend of mine, Judith DeVore, who's a dairy farmer in the Netherlands. Judith, I'm really excited to share your story with our listeners. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. And it's my pleasure being here on the podcast with you. So Judith, I obviously know a lot of your story, and I think it's a really great one, but I'm excited to share it more with our listeners today. So give our listeners a little bit of your story and how you ended up here on a dairy farm, because you did not grow up on a farm. No, I did not. I just grew up in the, the small city we're actually living in. And uh, I just met my husband, how many years ago? A long time ago. <laughs> and we, um, we took over the farm from my parents-in-law 12 years ago. And um, uh, I still had a job outside of the farm, but, and, and I started doing the books. And it took me quite a while to figure out what is my role at the farm, what's giving me energy, what is, well, what I felt was need to be done. So I really decided to become a farmer as well. And I love taking care of the cows, but also doing a lot of other things right now at the moment. 
Yeah, you guys have a lot of stuff going on besides just the farm, which we'll get to here in a second. But the current dairy farm is how many generations old now? Yeah, as far as we know, we are the fifth generation and the third on the, the place we're living at. Yeah, so it's a true family farm and still my, my parents-in-law are involved. Uh, they're helping out and especially when we're busy with hay. Yeah, it's it's true family farm, yeah. So here in the Netherlands, the pressure you have from government, from the neighbors, there's a lot that you have to deal with on your 120 head dairy operation, as well as you can only have so many cows at a time. Talk to us about some of those challenges that you guys face. Yeah, well, first of all, I love to farm. Okay, so we're really happy with our farm and our place. But there's definitely challenges when it comes to regulations, changing regulations all the time, pressure, political and both um, public pressure about the environment and nature. So um, our government made plans to improve the quality of nature. And one of the factors that can have an influence on the or an impact on the quality of nature is nitrogen. So they made some plans to buy out farmers in order to reduce the amount of nitrogen or the methane emissions actually. So it's giving a lot of pressure, um, a lot of uncertainties, what's gonna happen to me and my farm. Like ourselves, we're the fifth generation farmer and it will be, yeah, horrible if the government says that we have to stop. Yeah. And that's only one thing. There's a lot of more uh, things going on. But in response to that, you and your husband, Rick, have done a lot of practices to help with your environmental footprint. So talk to us about some of those. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important that at your farm you do what suits you. So sometimes small steps can be really helpful. So what we do actually is very simple. Have a lot of clover in the fields because they can collect nitrogen into the soil actually but as we speak they're gonna replace the the barn floor and it's really in 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 innovative kind of floor so it's really helping to reducing the the methane emissions we're part of this big pilot uh, it's called bofar and it's a feeding pilot and we work together with a chemical uh, company and so we're changing actually the diet of the cows so whatever goes in has to come out in a way if you understand what I mean so if you change what goes in it also means that what comes out changes so and and this is for just methane emission and nitrogen but we do a lot of things for sustainability so you guys milk your 120 herd two times a day and then from there, how frequently or how much milk does that produce? How often are you getting your milk shipped out to wherever it's going? And what does your milk get used for? So our milk is being processed by Friesland Campina. It's a, a multinational, but it's still a corporation owned by, by the members. Um, and our milk is being processed for, for cheese mainly. Uh, and sometimes for special kind of yogurts with raspberry taste. 
And um, we milk twice a day. We don't have robots, but we do have automatic uh, milking system in the, in the parlor. And like a couple of times a week, they collect the milk. So um, the average of our cows is at the moment something at 35 uh, liters a day. And it's not top production, but for us, it's important that we have got strong cows that are healthy and live longer. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one other unique factor about the way that you dairy farm here in the Netherlands. In the U.S., it's very common for cows to be cold earlier in their life. But in the Netherlands, you use them until kind of the end of their life. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah, I, I, I really like that because it's um, these are not just animals for us or production method. Every cow has their own name. And for us, it's really important that they're staying healthy and as long as, as possible at the farm. So there's cows living here longer than I am on the farm. And I moved to the farm, like I said, 12 years ago, yes. So there's a few that are older than you or have been on the farm yes, longer than you. Yes. And they also, they, they do look really happy and healthy and they go mm -hmm. out, they graze during the day, they come back uh, in the morning and at night to do their milking and they're wearing cow Fitbits. Yes, they are. So it's kind of a Fitbit and with the Fitbit, we can um, use a lot of data for our uh, business management actually, but also checking the um, uh, how much a cow is um, is feeding, what the temperature is, how many liters a cow is uh, is giving each day. So it's a lot of data being provided for us, so we can uh, yeah we can use it in the day to day business actually. There's so many interesting questions that I have just floating through my mind. But one thing I'm thinking about is today you and your husband took us to the mill or to the cheese uh, market, mm -hmm. which was really unique to see. So today in its current form, it looks more like a farmer's market for our U.S. based listeners. Mm -hmm. But in the olden days, when Rick's grandfather was dairy farming and was selling his cheese, the cheese market was actually used to sell cheese to cheese brokers. Can you talk us through a little bit about how yeah. that system worked? Yeah. So if you were in uh, back in those days a dairy farmer, um, and it doesn't really matter what kind of dairy, also uh, sheep or, or goat milk, um, you had to do the broking yourself. So you took all the cheeses that you had, and it was way less than cheeses uh, are being produced right now and you took them to a market and you're trying to sell them to um, whoever wants to pay a good price but it's kind of funny to see actually because it goes by hand clapping and you know um, saying no I don't accept your offer and okay so now I'm um, giving I want to give this for your cheese and it's by hand clapping and they're talking and it's quite funny to see actually and uh, so we went to the city of Gouda. It's quite, quite uh, famous for its cheese and it was great to see. And there was a lot of people watching that really, how it used to be back in those days, yes. Yes, and that's one thing I've discovered is we've been mispronouncing Gouda, it's actually Gouda. <laughs> yes. And we are here really close to the home of Gouda cheese. Yes, and it's uh, it's a fantastic um, historical town as well, and it's it's fantastic to see there's cheese stores, uh, but Gouda is also famous for its 
syrup waffles. So there's actually all kind of uh, shops where you can buy just syrup waffles and it's it's great place to to visit. Yes. Yeah, I've been really enjoying all of the great food mm-hmm. that the yeah. Dutch have to offer. But Judith, besides the farm Mm -hmm. that you manage with your husband, you have three kids and you guys have an educational farm where you invite the public out. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to, you physically added a a barn, first of all, to invite people out, but why did you decide to open your farm to people outside of agriculture? Well, um, I feel it's really, really important that as farmers, we tell what we do because less people know where their food is coming from and less people is knowing what farmers have to do before food end up at people's plates. And um, there's a big need for information. So I decided a couple of years ago that, like I said, what is my energy? What is my passion? I really felt it's important to tell our story from our perspective and instead of let somebody else tell my story. And um, so there was already coming school classes and policy makers, all kind of people. And we decided to take it to the next level and, and build this building. It's not actually a barn, but it's, it's, a, it's a great building. So a lot of people are visiting now, but also boards. And there's place for me to give presentation, farm tours, everything. Yes. Who do you think has been the most impactful guest or guests that you've gotten to talk to? Like, who do you think has been most changed by coming to your farm? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I have to say the, the Secretary of Ag of the provincial government. Um, she, it's a she. She visited the farm and the farmers organization, well, she was just um, started as a secretary of ag, not not with an agricultural background. So it was great having her and talking about uh, opportunities, challenges, policies, and what we should, well, what we need from her and yeah it was a great visit she was really listening and um yeah but also sometimes it's just a kid who's coming by and says oh oh so chocolate milk is not from your brown cows so it's impact can be big or small it's just depending on who's listening actually yeah and I think farmers oftentimes feel like their voices are not heard or are not being listened to, but you've really made it your mission to be involved, to get a seat at the table and to share your story. How have you, how, how did you ever go about doing that? Because you've talked at some big groups, some big events in front of some big world leaders. Yeah. Well, I kind of rolled into it, actually. Um, uh, first of all, I became a Newfields uh, scholar a couple of years ago. And I'm, I'm about to finish that and I started speaking um, and I'm a columnist for this national newspaper, agricultural newspaper. And more and more people were asking me, oh, you can tell uh, your story and so good that you're bringing people to your farm, but also coming out of your farm. So it was just, I guess, two years ago, I um, uh, received the, the newsletter of uh, the Global Farmer Network saying we're having this new 
communication and roundtable coming up and it's for farmers and our aim is to amplify farmers voices and i was like oh this is this is something i really really want get more training involved in other networks meet other kind of farmers and surround myself with you know um people i can learn from inspiring people and share stories so um yeah it's and they accepted me for the global farmer network and that's really been an accelerator i guess so it's uh, was helping me build confidence, shaping my story. Yeah, and one thing just led to another, I guess, in that way, yeah. So for those of our listeners, I wanna back up for a second, that haven't heard of the Nuffield Scholar Program. And as a side note, you're wrapping up your Nuffield program tomorrow and having a big farm tour day. And that's part of the reason that I made the trip over here to the Netherlands. But what is the Nuffield Scholar Program? Yeah. So. Newfield is an international organization with uh, also a Dutch board and it's present in a lot of countries right now. And it started back in 1964 with the um, foundation, a trust fund actually of Lord Newfield who became rich by selling tractors. And he already had a vision that the, um, the health of people should be improved. So he invested in healthcare, but also invested in farming because he already had the vision that um, if if you have good and safe food, that's already um, on the, the preventive side for, for health is really important. So nowadays there's a couple of thousands uh, scholars from all over the world uh, being part of it. And it's actually a personal leadership program uh, you can follow it globally, and with the scholarship, you're able to travel uh, and study a topic of your own interest. Anything related to ag- uh, agriculture or fisheries or anything. So it can be about uh, something with nutrition for, for animals, policies, ag or anything that's related to agriculture. Yeah. And it's a great opportunity to to meet people, uh, farmers from all over the world, and uh, learn about um, uh, agricultural economics, policies, uh, communication as well. What are the challenges globally? What's the relationship between culture and agriculture and food production? Um, so it's a great opportunity to yeah to broaden your vision actually and and grow as a person so with the last couple of years that you've been traveling because COVID impacted your time as a Nuffield scholar what's the most interesting or impactful thing that you've learned with your travels over the past couple years wow that's a difficult question the most impactful thing well um I was able to travel quite a lot in in total uh, 20 weeks and um, in last July August and September I traveled for six weeks with a group of of scholars from all over the world and when I was in in Spain particularly I seen um, the relationship like I said before with culture agriculture and food was really really strong and I remember one time and we were at the goose farm 
and uh, they 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 showed us around. They told something about uh, foie gras, the 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 goose uh, meat and everything. And after that, we were able to taste, and it was like everything was actually coming together, sharing knowledge, but also having the story of food and enjoying it. And I was feeling really that moment like this is something we're missing in in Holland actually. And so it was not like a big impact, but it was more like um, the awareness that what we're missing and what is really, really important for us farmers as well. We call those aha moments Mm -hmm. in the US. Yes, we do too. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, Judith, you have such a great story. And I know we really only got to start and scratch the surface Mm -hmm. of it. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you go, listeners. It's kind of fun to tag along with Delaney as she takes on these adventures for us, living vicariously through her. So thanks, Delaney, for doing that. Listeners, thanks for listening. But I'd say for today, let's let them go.